turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 17. And uh, it's a little bit longer than the previous psalm. And then uh, next week we'll look at Psalm 18, which is much longer. And uh, I have, um, I feel like uh, many other uh, pastors, um, some don't exactly feel this way about the longer psalms, but I feel um, that you shouldn't really break a psalm up when you preach it, except for maybe Psalm 119. <laughs> um, I, I'm not going to preach that whole thing in one, um, and that is an acrostic, but um, you know, as we get to the longer ones, um, we'll just kind of have to hit the high points. Um, but nonetheless, we'll do Psalm 17 tonight, Psalm 18 uh, next week, and then uh, we'll take a break from the Psalms for a while as we'll look at uh, the book of Daniel. So read along with me, uh, Psalm 17. Hear a righteous cause, O Yahweh. Give heed to my cry of lamentation. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. May my judgment come from your presence. May your eyes behold what is upright. You have tested my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tried me and you find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips I have kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My footsteps have not stumbled. I have called upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my speech. Marvelously show your loving kindnesses, O Savior, of those who take refuge at your right hand, from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who devastate me, my deadly enemies who surround me, they have closed their unfeeling heart. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He is like a lion that is eager to tear, and as a young lion lurking in hiding places. Arise, O Yahweh, confront him, bring him low. Protect my soul from the wicked with your sword. From men with your hand, O Yahweh. From men of the world whose portion is in this life, and whose belly you fill with your treasure, they are satisfied with children, and leave their excess to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again we thank you for allowing us this opportunity to gather, to worship you, to sing your praises and to look at your word. And as we look at this particular psalm of David, help us to glean from it, to understand it, to um, get, in a sense, a, a window into his heart and soul, but more than that, of what your spirit was speaking through him as he penned these words, and help us to uh, receive them, to understand them, to apply them to our lives. And please speak through me as I preach your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As many of the Psalms, uh, we, uh, and especially the Psalms of David, we see um, this uh, situation that um, he is, it's, it's almost, um, as once again, David is in trouble. <laughs> um, and and it, it may um, quite be the case that, that uh, some of his Psalms were uh, the same circumstance, but um, as we know, uh, most of his psalms, we, we can't really pinpoint the exact circumstance. Um, you you kind of get a hint, and, and there's, there's some good speculation. Uh, many have uh, thought that this is um, from this, this uh, situation with Saul, as he's chasing them, this situation is in uh, 1 Samuel 23 and uh, 20, 25. And so if you would turn there real quick, and I just want to somewhat paint the scene. I, I believe this, this 
quite possibly could be the scene. It, it, it's, a, it's a good uh, guess. Um, certainly, as we read the psalm, we see that he seems trapped. He seems surrounded. He seems as if there's no way out. And we read this in uh, 1 Samuel 23 and verse 25 um, and following, or actually start from verse 24 of uh, 1 Samuel 23. Then they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. So Saul and his men went to seek him. And they told David, and he came down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul heard it and pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, but Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to seize them. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines. Therefore they called that place the Rock of Escape. Then David went up from there and stayed in the strongholds of Engidi. And Certainly as we read through these psalms and we see these such situations where David is in trouble and he cries out to God and we can speculate, as uh, I said many commentators have, that it's either he's on the run from Saul or that time in which he was on the run from Absalom, um, but most likely uh, those times in which he was on the run from Saul. And there, there's certain, uh, actually uh, many... Uh, situations where he was running from Saul and, and Saul had almost uh, closed in on him, almost got him. And this is one such situation is, is probably that scene where he is surrounded and, and he feels surrounded, he feels trapped, he feels stuck. There's no possible recourse for him but to pray. It's, he knows this and he knows that unless God delivers him, unless God uh, providentially works through this situation that he's a goner, that he's going to be captured, he's going to be trapped, he's going to be killed, and not just him, but the, uh, everyone who is with him. And we get this, this sense in this psalm that it's not just David, it is primarily David that's the one being hunted down, but um, we see this even in, in verse 11 that it says, they have now surrounded us in our steps and so we get the sense that he is with his men and 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 he's being chased by a group of men so um, that paints a, a good picture of him uh, this this scene in first Samuel 23 and so we have this this uh, prayer or, or this psalm of deliverance as um, many of the psalms have been categorized by different people into different categories of psalms of lament or psalms of uh, deliverance or uh, messianic psalms or uh, royal psalms or um, uh, psalms of thanksgiving. And this is, in a sense, a, either a psalm of more along the lines of psalm of deliverance, but also uh, somewhat of a lament as well. Um, but we see here in this psalm that He's, we, he, he's praying for deliverance. He's praying for God to intervene, for God to deliver him, for God also to vindicate him, to strike down his uh, enemies. And, and as he makes this long prayer, we, we see that he makes five statements within this prayer and five statements which reveal to us the degrees or the depths uh, of his circumstances. But more than his circumstances, it gives us a picture into his, uh, his mind, his heart, his conscience, and also his confidence in himself and in God, primarily in God. And so as we look at this psalm, we'll look at it in, in five parts, five statements of David. First, his plea for a hearing, and we'll see his pronouncement of innocence, then his petition for protection. Fourth, his portrayal of the enemies. And then fifth, and finally, his proclamation for vindication. Now, first, we see his plea for a hearing in verses 1 and 2. 
Hear, O right, hear a righteous cause, O Yahweh. Give heed to my cry of lamentation. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. May my judgment come from your, your presence. May your eyes behold what is upright. He gives this plea for a hearing, a, a hearing with the righteous judge of creation. Um, and, and this is somewhat of, you picture a, a courtroom scene. Or, or maybe uh, even more uh, along the lines of in David's context or even in the medieval context where the, the king was a supreme judge and, and you, would, you would plead with a hearing for a hearing with the king. And, and the king would, in a sense, act as the supreme court or the supreme judge who would um, determine all you know, the highest or, or the most significant cases. Uh, you think of um, uh, King Solomon. And when the, the lower rulers or the, the, the elders of the Jews could not settle a dispute, then it rose to the level of the king. And so David is bringing his, his case to the highest court, to the, the righteous judge of the universe, to God, to the only one who can really uh, uh, rectify this situation that he is in. And so he, he, he brings his plea for hearing to the righteous judge, with the righteous judge, and that he would be inclined to answer his righteous plea. As he says, hear a righteous cause, O Yahweh. You get the sense that, you know, this is a good case. This is a good cause. This is a, a good reason to, or, or to bring up before you, to answer. Um, you think uh, also along the lines of a courtroom scene that um, even in our own country uh, that the Supreme Court doesn't hear every case. There's many cases that get kicked back because they're not of the... the um, they're not as significant or they're not of the nature that, that the Supreme Court should be bothered with that. But here in David's sense, he, he says, hear a righteous cause. This is a good cause. This is a good case. And you're the only one that can really answer this. And so he brings his plea for hearing before the righteous judge of the universe that he would be inclined to answer this righteous plea and that he would have compassion on David as he is oppressed and downtrodden with, with Saul and his uh, men all around him. But also he brings his plea not only uh, for a hearing with the righteous judge, but a hearing with a clear conscience. That he has a clear conscience as he brings his cause before uh, God. As he says, even at the end of verse 1, give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. And in verse 2, may my judgment come from your presence. May your eyes behold what is upright. And true, uh, he, he's confident to appeal to the highest court in creation where he trusts that he can receive a fair hearing, that, that God will judge perfectly and righteously. But he's also confident that, that he can bring everything before the highest court, that he will not be found guilty in anything or, or or there won't be the sense well David you kind of brought this on yourself or you know you kind of made some foolish decisions and so you, you kind of deserve what's coming to you no he, he he searches himself as we'll see next that he hasn't really found anything wrong within him and in all throughout this uh, narrative with uh, between him and Saul as we read in first uh, Samuel um, that He's, in a sense, blameless, and he holds to his, his own blamelessness, this sense of, as we hear that term blameless throughout, uh, especially in the Old Testament, it, it's that sense of an external righteousness. Yeah, even throughout the Old Testament that the saints knew that they weren't completely righteous, but there is this, this principle or this concept of being blameless. Where though you may have some internal sins of, of thoughts and even your desires externally and especially in your relationships and the way you carry yourself, there, there's, you're for the most right, 
upright and righteous. And so the, we, we get this term blameless, that, that um, the people around you, they, they can't, in a sense, bring a charge against you that would stick. Because they'd say, well, David, no, no, he couldn't have done that. Or, you know, this is the same term that's used of, of other people like, like Job, per se, that he was blameless. And so because of uh, who David knows himself to be, and what others have said about him, he is confident to bring this plea before God to be tried by the highest court. And so we see his plea for a hearing. And then second, we see his pronouncement of innocence. Verses 3 to 5. You have tested my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tried me and you find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men... By the word of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My footsteps have not stumbled. And that's, in a sense, if you just look at those words, verses 3 to 5, that's a, that's a bold proclamation. I mean, I, I couldn't really say that. And I dare say, you know, any honest believer couldn't really say that about themselves. But... This is scripture. And so you got to take it at face value that this is, this is true about David. That he is willing to, to be laid open and, and, and bare before, uh, before God, before the, the, the judge of the universe. That he pronounces his innocence or his blamelessness. And, and not, uh, you know, sinlessness, not perfection. But that, for the most part, he is blameless. And so he pronounces his innocence. And his, his innocence, his, this pronouncement of innocence, it's first based on the judge's examination. Verse 3, you have tested my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tried me and you find nothing. He's appealing to God's examination of him. He knows that God tests the hearts of men, that, that God sees everything. He, uh, he knows everything. He, he knows uh, uh, David's secret thoughts and desires. As he says, you have tested my heart. You know, the, the, the things that no one else sees, uh, those internal desires and, and wants that uh, no one else sees but God. You have visited me by night. Uh, he, he knows that, that God has not only examined his heart, but his secret life. What he does in the night. You know, you think about that. Uh, you know, when we're alone in the night, either in our home or maybe uh, uh, some of you, I, I like every once in a while, you know, when I can, to go out, walk out at night and, and pray or just to be you know, to hear that quiet of night and that peacefulness. Um, but we also know that it's at nighttime, and even the Bible would assert this, the nighttime in, in which people sin. And they're more prone to sin because it's dark, and there are oft times they can be alone. And, uh, and this is where we get this, this under the cover of darkness, that, you know, thieves do their stealing and sinners do their sinning. But he says, God, you've visited me by night. You know. You know where I stand. You know my blamelessness. That even in the night, even um, in the secret parts of my heart, you know me, you've tried me, and you find nothing. He pronounces his innocence based on the judge's examination. But also, second, based on his faithful resolve. Verses 4 to 5. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My footsteps have not stumbled. He pronounces his innocence based on his faithful resolve to not sin in word or deed. And that's something. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. He, he separated himself from the ungodly and the wicked. You think of Psalm 1. 
which is a psalm of David, uh, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is David. He separated himself from sinners, from scoffers, from the wicked, and he delights in God's law. And so he, in a sense, pronounces his innocence based on that, based on his faithful resolve to keep God's law, to separate himself from the ungodly and from the wicked. And because of that, his footsteps have not stumbled. Your, your word is a, a light to my path and, and a lamp to my feet. And so because he's kept God's law, because he's separated himself from the wicked, he's, in a sense, uh, not stumbled. He's held fast to God's paths, to God's ways. And so because of that, he can pronounce his innocence before the high court of heaven. And that's what he does as as he is pleading for a hearing with the um, judge of all creation and, and pleading for deliverance and, and using um, his own blamelessness and his faithfulness um, to support his case. And third, we see his petition for protection, verses 6 to 8. And this is really um, the getting into the center of this psalm as you know the, the um, his plea for a hearing is just opening up and then um, uh, almost uh, helping his case with his innocence and then now he gets to he, you know he gets to the the meat or the center or the the bottom line um, uh, of the matter at hand that he needs protection and so he offers this petition for protection verses six to eight i have called upon you for you will answer me O god incline your ear to me hear my speech marvelously show your loving kindnesses O savior of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up against them keep me as the apple of the eye hide me in the shadow of your wings and this petition of his for protection it's based on two things it's based on first God's steadfast love or his loving kindnesses this Hebrew word this this uh, Hebrew word of, of God's covenant love his hesed that is can be translated steadfast love or loving kindnesses it, it, it's kind of it, it's more than just love it's more than just faithful love and so uh, oftentimes the English translations have a hard time uh, uh, pulling out the fullness of it. And so we see loving kindness or steadfast love. And here it says loving kindness is, uh, plural. And this is the grounding of or the foundation of his petition for protection that God um, will, those whom he loves, he loves eternally. Because God never changes, and he is faithful to keep his covenant, even though we are often unfaithful. And so he, in a sense, uh, calls upon God to protect him, but also reminds God of his covenant. And he calls upon God because God answers. He answers. And he even says that, I have called upon you, for you will answer me, O God. And then it's... It's interesting, and some of this is poetic, but it's interesting right after he says that, then he, he petitions, incline your ear to me, hear my speech. He calls not only because God answers, but because God listens. He not only hears, but he listens. And he's, he asks him to show your loving kindnesses to me. I, I know that that I fall under the the care or under the realm of your steadfast love but but manifest that to me show that to me and so he calls he petitions for protection based on god's steadfast love but he calls not only because god answers and not only because god listens but he also calls because god acts he will act and he will deliver those who call upon him as he says in psalm 50 call upon me in the day of trouble and i will deliver you and you shall glorify me we are needy. 
And God delights in our prayers and in our requests and in us leaning upon him and calling upon him. Too often we get in times of trouble and especially in these times in which we feel squeezed and our mind races to figure out a way out. How can we get out? But David, it is, is in one of these situations between a rock and a hard place, almost literally, as he's on one side of the mountain and Saul is coming around the other side, and he's between a rock and a hard place. And it's only by God's hand that he calls Saul away. Those situations, just in the nick of time or just by the skin of our teeth, he gets out of there. And most of us have never been in those situations. We might have gotten close, either in the workplace or relational situation or maybe some financial burden or maybe it was a potential lawsuit. But for most of us, we haven't been in a situation like this where you know, we're about to lose our life and our livelihood. And David was there, and there was no one to deliver but God. And so he calls on him, and he calls on him, and he reminds uh, God, in a sense, of his steadfast love toward him and, and calls on him for protection based upon that steadfast love. But, but not only his steadfast love, but he, he petitions him for protection based on God's fatherly affection. His fatherly affection. Verse 8, keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. He appeals to God's fatherly affection for him. His tender care and protection. And here we get this term, apple of the eye. And what's interesting is, is there's behind here, there's almost like a, a Hebrew idiom being translated into an English idiom. Apple of the eye. It's quite literally could be um, uh, the pupil or the daughter of the eye or the little man. This is uh, uh, what the picture here is. If you ever get close to somebody or, or maybe if you look close enough in the mirror and you know within your pupil that it's black, and the closer you get, because it's black, it's almost like a mirror. And so it reflects. And so it's almost as if it's painting this picture as if God is looking so close upon David that there's the reflection of David within his eye. So that that is, is within all of God's vision. And encompasses that, that that is the object of God's affection. David. And not just David, but all of God's people. But nonetheless, David is the one calling upon God. But it's more than that. It's, it's more than the, the center of his affection because this also gets at um, a sense of protection and a sense of um, not only protecting the object of one's sight and affection, but protecting that eye itself that the eye is in a sense it's very vulnerable and it's one of those things that is you know once it it gets injured it's it's almost permanent at times because it's so soft and it's so vital that even within our own head that there is bone all around our eyes to protect our eyes. And, and if anything gets close to the eye, we naturally blink or we pull away to protect our eye. And, and so we get this uh, almost a, a, a dual image or a fuller uh, picture of not only the object of one's affection, of God's eye, but the eye itself and, and protecting that. that. That it's almost as if David is not only within his eyesight, but within his eye itself. So that David calls upon protection based on God's fatherly affection, but also um, his 
power and his ability to protect. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. In this sense, this is also an illustration that's used a few different times throughout the Old Testament. This sense of God spreading his wings over his people. It's, and I'd like you to turn there to Deuteronomy 32 that Moses paints his picture, this picture, or rather God speaking through uh, Moses for, in a sense that uh, uh, concerning his people. Deuteronomy 32 in, in verse 8, as uh, Moses is speaking to the people, um, is, these are his last words um, on the, uh, uh, the plains of uh, Moab, um, you know, before they cross over the, the Jordan um, to take Jericho in the conquest, uh, before uh, uh, Moses would go up to Mount Nebo and, and God would take him. He says this, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. Yahweh alone guided him, and there was no foreign god with him. And so in a sense that, that David is not only appealing to God's uh, steadfast love and his fatherly affection for him individually, but based on the law and his steadfast love, his covenant love towards his people, towards Israel, and David being the rightful king as the leader of Israel. And so there's great depth to this petition for protection to God. It's not just about David, but it's about uh, God's people as well, and David as a king and the rightful king of his people. It's interesting, this sense of the shadow of your wings. There's also this picture of that Jesus would use the same picture as he calls out to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. But David's not like that. David's not only willing, he's running after God to find that protection and that fatherly protection under his wings. And so he petitions for that. And this is almost, in a sense, the, the core or the center of this this prayer in this psalm. We've seen his plea for a hearing, his pronouncement of innocence, then his petition for protection, and next we see his portrayal of the enemies, the, the, the danger that he is in. He says, Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who devastate me, my, my deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed their unfeeling heart. With their mouth they speak proudly, they have now surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He is like a lion that is eager to tear, and as a young lion lurking in hiding places. He, he portrays to God, or he explains to God, um, the situation that he is in, the, 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 the dire straits that he is uh, traveling through, the 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 portrayal of his deadly enemies. He, he portrays their power and their disposition and their posture. First, their power, that they, they um, are wicked. They, they assail him wickedly. They, they, they want to uh, mount up an assault against him. And so they surround him, and they surround him with deadly intentions, not, not just to capture him, but to kill him. And oftentimes in the ancient world, and, and we see this e even in Saul's death, 
that he takes his own life so that he would not get captured and tortured. And there is a sense that there is great fear as, you know, in the ancient world in warfare as the enemy would surround and they would know that the last thing they would want to happen is to get captured so that they would be tortured and humiliated. But there's also a sense that that even in, in uh, getting captured, there, there might be the possibility of uh, escaping or being, uh, uh, being uh, somehow uh, uh, rescued. But David knows that's not the case. He, he knows that they want to kill him. They want to tear him apart. They, they want to uh, be done with him. And not just him, but all the men with him. And so they surround him with deadly intentions. That's a, there's real power with his enemies. But more than that, we see his, their disposition. Their disposition. They have closed their unfeeling heart. With their mouth, they speak proudly. They're insensitive and hard-hearted. And you might have a, a somewhat different translation of their unfeeling heart. Uh, this could be they have closed up their fat hearts or they have closed their, literally, they have closed their fat. This is a... As one commentator says, this was a common Old Testament idiom for insensitivity. That there's, there's fatness around, like literal fat, that is uh, almost not only protecting the heart, but uh, covering up the heart so that the heart is unfeeling. It, it can't feel anything because all the fat around them have closed their fat or the fat around the heart. As one preacher said, they have fat hearts and fat heads. <laughs> and because of that, they speak proudly. They're, they're insensitive. They're cold-hearted. They're hard-hearted. They're proud and they're boastful. And so it, it is not just enough that they are, uh, want David dead, but they want to boast about it. And they want to then speak proudly about it. And so we see their power and their disposition, and then we see their posture. They have now surrounded us in our steps. And, and there's somewhat of a digression here. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He is like a lion that is eager to tear, and as a young lion lurking in hiding places. They've, in a sense, they, they've closed in on them. They're, they're there, uh, or as we've uh, heard in many movies and TV shows, we've got you right where we want you. We've got you surrounded, and this is where David is. There, there's, there's no way out. And, and not only have they surrounded them, but they eagerly anticipate his destruction. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground, to humiliate us, and then to tear us apart. And here it moves from the plural to the singular. The, the, the plural of uh, the enemies to the singular. He. He is like a lion that is eager to tear and as a young lion lurking in hiding places. And this is where many would take this to be Saul. Um, perhaps, you know, some might even venture to say it was Absalom, but it's most likely that situation that I read from 1 Samuel. But nonetheless, there is a leader here. There is a leader. There is a, a nemesis. There's, there's someone that is leading the charge against David, and they have an army with them, or they have followers with them that are, are closing in on David. But there is one ringleader, one enemy, one main nemesis. And he's like a lion. He's powerful, but he's also uh, eager, eager to tear him apart. And as he says, as a young lion lurking in hiding places, setting himself up for that, that uh, I guess, uh, the, the time in which he can pounce on David. And so 
He portrays the power of his enemies, the disposition of his enemies, and the posture of his enemies. And then finally, in this psalm, we see that he has this future proclamation, his proclamation for vindication, that he will be vindicated in a sense. He still calls upon God, upon Yahweh, to uh, confront his enemies, to bring them low, to protect him. But there's almost a, a future aspect to this in his proclamation for vindication, verses 13 to 15. Arise, O Yahweh, confront him, bring him low, protect my soul from the wicked with your sword. From men with your hand, O Yahweh, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, and whose belly you fill with your treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave their excess to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. And so he, proclaim, he, he, he gives this proclamation for vindication to the one and the only one who can vindicate to Yahweh. And once again, this, this, uh, this um, phrase, Arise, O Yahweh, or Arise, o, o Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, um, hearkening back to uh, Old Testament uh, passages. And even uh, in the Psalms as well, other Psalms, Arise, O Yahweh, confront him, bring him low. And there is a sense that David is recognizing that although he himself is powerless, God is able to confront David's enemies. Though, though David is hiding and he's running and he's trying to get away, and, and he can't confront his enemy, God can. And though David can't bring him low, God is able to humble David's enemies and, in a sense, uh, uh, reverse the position. As David is, is somewhat being humbled here as he is on the run and he's being chased and he's between a rock and a hard place and there's nowhere he can go but up, so to speak, and he goes up in prayer, that David is almost calling upon Yahweh to put his enemies in his position. That, that God would confront his enemy and he would bring him so low that, that all the enemy could do is repent or face God's judgment. And so he calls upon God to vindicate him. But this proclamation for vindication is not only to the one who can vindicate, but it's, it's to vindicate him from those who deserve retribution. From his enemies, they, they, they deserve retribution from Yahweh. Verse 14, from men with your hand, O Yahweh, from men of the world whose portion is in this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure. They are satisfied with children, leave their excess to their infants. He calls upon vindication from those who deserve God's retribution. And they deserve God's retribution for their worldliness. They're men of the world. Their, their portion, their desire, their treasure, everything they live for is in this life. And, and also see that whose belly you fill with your treasure. God has given them all the things that they delight in, that they are satisfied with, and, and yet they don't thank God for those things. And so they deserve retribution. They deserve retribution for their worldliness, but more than that, for their ingratitude and their disregard for God and His good gifts. That all these things that they delight in and, and they, they find their portion in and their treasure in, they, they all come from God's hands, His hand. They're, they're all gifts of God. And yet they don't honor God and they don't honor God's anointed, so to speak, uh, David, as the the king of Israel. They, they, they don't honor him. They, they don't care about God's law. They just want God's stuff. And so they deserve retribution, and David calls upon that. But finally, this proclamation for vindication is not only to the one who can vindicate and from those who deserve uh, retribution, to be vindicated from those who deserve retribution, but for the sake of redemption. 
For the sake of redemption, verse 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. David is in a sense of saying, you know, whatever happens, I, I know that I will be with you and I will stand before you. But I, I, I not only place my full hope in this future uh, eternal deliverance uh, from sin, from uh, the effects of sin, from judgment. But I'm confident that you will deliver me from this situation as well. And so he, he, uh, he, he calls for vindication for the sake of redemption, for God's redemption from sin and from a sin-cursed world. As he says, for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. And there's a sense that uh, he is speaking not only of being face to face with God, but of uh, uh, a future righteousness, a, a righteousness which he does not currently have, an alien righteousness that, that um, uh, we would learn more about in the New Testament, in the Gospels. That he, he says, I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake, of Christ-likeness, of being remade and conformed into the image of Christ, of being made new, of being receiving a righteousness which he does not have. That's more than just his external blamelessness, of purity and wholeness. In the sense of also when I awake, this this uh, picture of the resurrection. That he looks forward to, in a sense, uh, being delivered from uh, this separation from God and the sting of death, this separation from God that is uh, due to the fact that he's a sinner living in a sin-cursed world. And so, though we can come to God, and, and David comes to God, there is, in a sense, a, a separation because of our sin. And he longs for being in God's presence, being remade into the image of, of Christ and, and, and uh, having the image of God restored. And that's his ultimate hope. You know, and then oftentimes in life, we find ourselves in situations, maybe not as dire as David, maybe not as significant. And we, we cry out to God, and we, we should cry out to God, and that's the first place we should go to for deliverance, for help. But ultimately, our hope is, is not in uh, earthly deliverance, because sometimes... Uh, there's a reason for God to keep us in the midst of that trial and that, that uh, tribulation, and, and, and maybe not even to deliver us from that earthly tribulation, but that we will maybe suffer and maybe die for the sake of our faith. And so our ultimate hope is in uh, future spiritual uh, deliverance of eternal life. John in his uh, epistle, 1 John, he speaks about this. Um, the sense of heaven, of being made new, and of placing all our hope in that that whatever may come, we do pray for, to God for help, for deliverance, for provision, for protection. But ultimately, our hope is in this future uh, deliverance. And I'd like you to turn with me to 1 John 3. And I'd like to end with this thought. As David, in a sense, ends with this hope of righteousness and of Christ's likeness, of the resurrection, of being satisfied in righteousness. Not, not just being satisfied in the fact that he's, 
he will be delivered from a trial, be delivered from this world and be resurrected, but being satisfied in the fact that he's no longer has to struggle with sin because he's satisfied with God's likeness. John says this in 1 John 3. He says, see how great a love the Father has given to us, that we would be called children of God, and we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not been manifested as yet what we will be. We know that when he is manifested, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. There's a sense that David ends hoping in purity of a new creation, of wholeness, where he will not only not have to deal with enemies and other sinners and, and, and uh, uh, those whose portion is in this life, worldly men, wicked men, but he won't have to deal with his own wickedness either and his own sinfulness and, and the remaining sin that's within him. And he will be made new. And he will see God as he is. He will behold him face to face. And he will be in his presence. And in a sense, he will be there under the shadow of his wings. And right before him as the apple of his eye. And that's David's hope and that ought to be our hope. And that's the only hope that can really guide us and get us through the trials of life and the tribulations of life. Heavenly Father, we so often are faced with trials and tribulations in this world. And, and even if we're not currently going through something, there, there's something perhaps around the corner, though we aren't to live in suspicion we don't have to look far to see that we live in a sin-cursed and broken world. A world that seems to get, be getting darker and darker every day. And yet your truth prevails and your kingdom advances. But we also know that throughout church history and in many places around the world, believers are being persecuted. And we're not promised an easy life, but we are promised eternal life to those who have repented and believed upon you. And more than that, we are promised freedom from the presence and the power of sin, of purity, of being remade new, recreated in your image and likeness, of being before you forever to worship you as uh, you are and as we ought to pleasures forevermore fulfillment of joy as David says at the end of Psalm 16 so Lord as we go about our lives help us to live with this hope before our eyes always in present view and for those here who are unsure of whether or not they have this hope Please stir within their hearts and minds by your spirit to draw them to yourself and that they may long for this hope and look for this hope and seek this hope that's found only in you. Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy and for your kindness, for your deliverance, for eternal hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.